I'd invite you to open your Bible to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Dear congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, there are two ways to do things in this world. The right way and again. Now this might seem like a silly cliche or a snappy one-liner that you'd hear from the mouth of your grandfather as he teaches you about hard work, but does it hold any weight in the Christian worldview? For a Christian, we know that there is only one way that that gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. But for those who have put their trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, failure along that road no longer becomes an option. Because it is not us working, but Christ through his Spirit working in us. Now Psalm 1 gives us an introduction to the Psalter, preparing our heart for the voyage through the Christian pilgrimage, preparing us for psalms of lament, psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of ascent, to name a few. As we survey this morning one of the three wisdom psalms, we journey through Psalm 1, we explore a theme, a voyage to victory. And we'll look at this at three points. The road of the righteous, the way of the wicked, point two, and point number three, the respected destinations. Our longest voyage, let's consider our first point, the road of the righteous. We read from scripture, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yield its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The psalm starts with three illustrations of the advancement of sin, contrasting what the righteous are not to do. We see walks, stands, and sit. There's this progression from a dynamic movement to a static movement, from movement to being still. We also see counsel, way, and seat, giving us a vivid illustration of the advancement of sin. We can think of counsel being no knowledge, but they're seeking, seducing. We think of way more as knowledge. There's more of an understanding, practicing, meddlers of sin, developing and understanding the way of sin. And then we come to seat. There's contentment, the callousness 
to abrasiveness of sin has taken over. Finally, we see wicked, sinners, and mockers. And we see the progression of the final state of those fallen into sin. And we can kind of think that this is sounds some something like the shopping experience, whether it be online or at a mall, maybe a hardware store, sporting goods store. Something catches our eye. Window shopping, maybe an advertisement. See, sin does not grab our attention all at once, but it's persistent. There's a constant pulse, a draw, a gravity that sucks you in. And Scripture warns us of this. We read in Genesis that sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. And in Romans, parallels the same thing, saying, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. See, sin wants to rule. Now we move to giving in. Maybe you're inside the store starting to think, maybe engaging with the salespeople. You're trying on, maybe test driving. The callus starts to form. You're justifying it to yourself. Sin doesn't seem that bad. I need this, or maybe I even deserve this. Maybe you put the purchase on hold or deposit down. Not fully yet committed, but it's getting harder and harder to stay away. You start thinking about the store and about your purchase. You keep returning, inquiring, coveting, justifying, budgeting, till finally you're at the checkout. Sin's talons have full grip into you, committed to the purchase, fully given in to the temptation. Now callous to the Holy Spirit grieving of sin, a callous that remains on your heart until God takes your heart and files down till you can feel the abrasiveness of sin again. But see, blessed is the man who is not seduced by sin, by their counsel, by their ways, by their seats, who does not become unequally yoked, not steered by the direction of sinners. And this is important to grasp because association begets assimilation. What we surround ourselves with, we start to become like. And Proverbs 13.20 explains this to us. It says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Paul explains this to the church in Philippi. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Now, this does not let you off the hook. We are still called to engage sinners. But we need to be discerning because we are prone to wander. And there is one who never wandered. Christ was truly the blessed man. Christ was confronted by Satan and did what the first Adam could not. Christ was able to eat with tax collectors and prostitutes and not be seduced by neither sex or money. Christ was around the Pharisees and not seduced by their self-righteous pietism or that outward display of holiness. 
Christ talked with the scribes and did not fall into their linguistic traps. See, his delight was in the law of the Lord. A law he came not to abolish, but to fulfill. And what does this mean to delight in the law of the Lord? Psalm 19.10 illustrates what the rules of the law are to be like. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Or Psalm 37.4 instructs us also, Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. See, when Scripture becomes our delight is reflected in our heart, a heart that no longer desires what God hates, a heart that suffers until it repents of its iniquities. See, we're changed from the inside out, a change that needs to happen before we can say, your will be done, O Lord. Before we must be able to confess, not my will. And our changed heart gives us the opportunity to meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. And this is an illustration of the meditating on the totality of Scripture. And I make reference to this because there were communities early in the New Testament that took this literally and established a rotation of interpret to study the law and expound on it 24 hours a day. See, therefore, our meditation is to be on the totality of Scripture. We do not divide the Scriptures, only reading the words of read of Christ. We're not splicing the Old Testament from the Bible, only focusing on God's love and mercy, forgetting his hatred of sin, his wrath, or his justice. You could even say that Psalm 1-2 parallels that of Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. The point here is their desire. There's a focus. There's a hunger for the things of the Lord. Scripture gives us an even better illustration in verse 3. He is like a tree. He is grounded. He is rooted. You can hear from the language of Psalm 92 of what this tree might have looked like. The righteousness flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit even at old age. They are ever full of sap and green. And these trees planted by streams of water. Now this is God's providence. As one commentator said, Who planted the streams of water? God did. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it means transplanted. See, the seed does not plant itself. A seed that's not sown on the path where birds can claim them, where the rocky ground is, where the sun will scorch them, or among the thorns where they are choked out, but by streams of water where they'll yield fruit. He plants you where you will flourish. He gives you gifts and abilities that are suitable for your environment. 
You think of Joseph was a specific tree planted for a specific purpose, equipped with gills, able to yield fruit, as was Moses, as was Gideon, as was Mary, all planted by God's providence for a specific reason, able to yield fruit. As would not the same for Christ, a specific seed, the promised seed of a woman, planted at the perfect point in history, carrying out God's perfect plan of redemption. See, God is the most capable gardener, because he takes the seeds that no one wants, the discount seeds, the bargain bin seeds, and he knows exactly how to make them bear fruit. All this fruit was yield in its due season. And if we focus on due season, how impatient can we be when it comes to bearing fruit? Waiting for that transformation from blood to flower to fruit. Our impatient eyes lift from the specific task given to us by God to the Christians around us. Our impatient grows to doubt and worry. We look at all the other Christian trees around us. Look at all the fruit that they have. You look at your branches without fruit. All you have is buds, not even a flower yet. But maybe your branches are immature and unable to carry the load of the fruit. And how irresponsible of God would it be to give you fruit with branches that are unable to support the weight? Or maybe because the Father has not yet pruned you, like we read in John 15.5. It's his pruning that causes our fruit to grow. And maybe we have yet to experience that. We do know that your fruit will come in its due season. Now, does that mean we become content? No. But we become patient and we're realistic. We read from Scripture that there are trees that will produce more fruit than you. It's clear. Matthew 13, 23 says, He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. And that's okay. Because we do not enter heaven by how full our fruit basket is. But only if you abide in the vine. Because apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Brothers and sisters, because you abide in the vine, you will have life abundantly. And this is what confessed in the later part of verse 3. As it leaf does not wither... In all that he does, he prospers. And you can think to yourself, well, it does not feel like my leaf does not wither. Nor do I prosper in all that I do. We are terrible at following the details of the law. How can I be this bad at something, yet still be part of the team, part of this kingdom army? Why have I not been fired? Why have I not been cut, traded, or dismissed? It's because of Jesus Christ. See, no Christian can be perfect. But Christ was perfect for us. Remember, you abide 
in him. Part of the nourishing vine. And there is nothing more prosperous than abiding in Jesus Christ. Earthly treasures will fade, but those treasures that we glean from Christ make us eternal wealthy. We receive no condemnation, but he strengthens us and encourages us daily to strive to be more faithful, to pick up our cross and march, no matter the weight of it or the distance of it we have to carry. It's because of Christ that our leaf does not wither. In all that we do, we prosper. And as we've journeyed through the road of the righteous, let us now turn our attention to the warning of the way of the wicked. Scripture reads, starting at verse 4, The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. See, the wicked are compared to chaff. Now, chaff at harvest time, when the grain is tossed up into the air, the chaff with the wind is blown away, or the heavier of the grains fall to the threshing floor. And if we pit verses 1 through 3 against that of 4 and 5 of contrast, if we compare the two, we see that chaff is light, but the tree is heavy. The chaff is blown away, but the tree is rooted. We see the chaff is useless, but the tree bears fruit. The chaff is short-lived for a season, but the tree has a long life. The chaff is death, and the tree is life. The chaff is without root. We can think about Christ's illustration about building a house at the end of Matthew 7. Chaff is like the house that's built on sand. The tree is like the house that's built on the rock. The chaff is blown around from every wind, from this to that. It's exhausting, never knowing where it lands, following the folly of the world, observing this science, Now that science, or this cause, or that cause. See, Scripture confesses, though that the way of the wicked for a short time seems to prosper, but they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. They will grow tall and stand until they are cut down by the harvest, unable unable to stand, only good, for the fire. And much like the contrast of these two sermon points, there's only so much you can glean from chaff. See, the way of the wicked is useless. It's barren. It's meager. It's scarce. But the road to the righteous is excessive. It's plentiful. And it's abounding. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And having taken heed now of the warning of the way of the wicked, let us now focus on the last point, 
their respected destinations. We read from Scripture. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. But the way of the wicked will perish. The wicked way, the easy way, the wide way, the intelligent way according to the world. But Scripture makes it also clear in Proverbs twice we read that there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is the way to death. But take comfort in the triune God. He is not a deistic God who winds up time and steps back, leaving you on this unknown path, five minutes down the trail, finding you in a ditch somewhere. He knows us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. He knows our individual way to righteousness that was hand-cut by God. It's not this generic cookie-cutter way, but a path tailored specific for you. He knows every hill. He knows every corner. He knows when it gets rocky, when it's smooth. He knows where you need to resupply or you need to rest or push on further. But more importantly, he knows why you are on this path and how it was the best path for you to lead to him. Congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may your steps be discerning as we navigate this narrow path, looking at Christ, the finisher and protector of our faith, our surety and our security. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you thanking you so much that you've paved the way for us, that the way of righteousness is set before us, and that Christ leads us down this way, that our ways are unique to us and our abilities, Father, that they're not some generic way, but you've given us a way that leads to you, and that you know every single step along this road, that we may take comfort, Father, in your guiding hand, so that one day we may sit face to face and worship you for all of eternity. It's through Christ's name that we pray. Amen.